0: to a very special episode of 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm still Craig Johnson. This special episode, though, is not going to be about weekly news on the right wing today. Instead, we're going to be talking about the deaths of three of the most important fascist figures in history. They all died this week in history. We're talking about some of the big Nazis. We got Martin Bormann, Joseph Goebbels, and of course, Adolf Hitler. First Nazi I'm going to talk about this week is probably the least known of the three. This is Martin Bormann. Uh, Bormann was Hitler's private secretary, a sort of palace leader party intrigue type. Um, his family was also all Nazis, incidentally. Uh, Martin Bormann was born in Prussia in 1900. He served in World War I, um, and economic hardships in his region prompted him to join the Freikorps. Uh, the Freikorps is an organization of sort of quasi-fascist paramilitary organization that erupted in Germany following World War I. Now, there had been examples of something called the Freikorps, which means a free corps, like like a, you know, a paramilitary organization uh, for hundreds of years. Uh but the Freikorps after World War I were organizations primarily of veterans um and of other disaffected people in the Weimar Republic. Uh, who, you know, because of their political positions and because of their participation in the war and because of their interpretation of Germany's loss in the war, you know, had a big chip on their shoulder, right, about German politics. Bormann rose in the ranks of his local Freikorps and eventually went to prison uh, for a political action that his Freikorps participated in, uh, the murder in 1924 of a rival right-wing German politician. Bormann uh, formally joined the Nazi Party in 1927 and eventually the SS in 1937. Uh, Initially, Bormann ran some internal bureaucratic stuff like internal funding, you know, pension plans, that kind of thing. A real bureaucratic guy. Uh, He eventually became the personal secretary to Rudolf Hess, uh, who was Hitler's secondary, Hitler's deputy um and this brought Bormann into the deep recesses of Nazi Party governance structure and eventually into Hitler's own inner circle. Uh starting with being in charge of the renovations of Hitler's private estate the Berghof, um Bormann eventually became a you know a primary access point to information to from and about Hitler, his daily life, you know, his daily briefings, what was going on in Hitler's schedule. Bormann was the gatekeeper for this, and this made him incredibly powerful, particularly because of how the Nazi government structure was actually, well, structured. Um, It was extremely personal. Hitler liked to pit personalities against one another, and would often tell you know different people competing orders, uh, trying to see who would triumph, right? You know whose perspective would win out. Uh, he would give people overlapping pieces of authority, and so Bormann, being a gatekeeper of information and access to Hitler, uh, whose personal like perspective and word was the final say in the Nazi Party and in Nazi Germany, uh, the government. Uh, this became incredibly important, incredibly powerful. Um, A party man par excellence. Uh, Bormann rose eventually to be effectively in charge of all government and party appointments, funds, uh, allocations of all kind. Um, Once the war started, he also came to be in charge of the labor program in Germany of a a major total war labor program. Bormann ideologically was a very serious hardline Nazi. He wasn't exactly a pagan, uh, but he wasn't particularly pro Christian either. Uh, He was extremely anti Semitic and also known for his anti Slavic opinions. Uh, You know, he also thought that uh, people of Slavic descent, that is, Eastern Europeans, uh, should be removed from their homelands and that German people should be uh, governing those parts of Europe. As the war deteriorated, you know, as Germany's position uh, worsened and as it became clear that that the Germans were going to lose the war, he fled with Hitler to the Führerbunker uh, as the Soviets invaded uh, Eastern Germany and then finally Berlin itself. Along with the other insiders, he, Hitler, uh, Goebbels, and you know a bunch of other people that I'm going to be talking about in a bit, um, spent the remaining days of the war there. Uh, after Hitler's suicide, which I'll of course get to nearer to the end of this episode, uh, Bormann was promoted uh, by virtue of Hitler's last will and testament uh, to be the leader of the Nazi party, uh, that's, that's the highest he ever rose, right? He fled with some other insiders uh, attempting to escape the Soviets uh, immediately after Hitler's suicide. There are conflicting stories of his death. Either he killed himself, probably with cyanide, uh, or he was killed by the Soviets, you know, in, in a bombing or was shot, you know, it, it, it's really hard to tell. However, his body was not found for many, many years, He was tried in absentia at the Nuremberg trials, uh, as his death was not yet confirmed. You know, there were reports of him being in Australia or being in Argentina or being in Brazil. Uh, If you followed some of our other episodes of See You in Hell, these things are not particularly far-fetched. It's entirely possible that somebody might have escaped like that. Uh, But he was tried in absentia at Nuremberg, sentenced to death by hanging. Eventually, uh, piecing together stories of some of the other Nazi insiders that escaped with him and also Soviet soldiers who were known to have been in the area, uh, his body was discovered in the 1960s. Um, and it was identified by piecing together, you know, these stories and also identified fo- formally by skeletal remains, uh, you know, jaw, uh, teeth, uh, and was also finally confirmed uh, using DNA evidence in 1999 his bodily remains, the ones that uh, we can confirm, were then cremated and the ashes were scattered in the Baltic Sea. So Martin Bormann, we'll see you in hell. Moving along to our second dead Nazi this week, we got Joseph Goebbels. Uh, Goebbels was the Reich Minister of Propaganda and a major public speaker in the Nazi party. He was born in Prussia in 1897. Uh, and his early childhood and, you know, his, his uh, teenage years was, you know, one of those like 19th century sickly kids. You know, he couldn't serve in World War I because of a like foot and leg deformity. Um, but he was an incredibly brilliant scholar, a top student um, and eventually got a Ph.D. in, in philology. Uh, which is a sort of like amalgamation of literature, linguistics, and literary criticism. He was a prolific author uh, and a personal tutor uh, as his profession uh, for much of his early life. He joined the Nazi party quite early on in 1924 as a propagandist and a journalist, and he eventually came to be in charge of much of the propaganda output uh, as his role in the party uh, and his uh, connection to Adolf Hitler, who was a rising star in the party, also increased. Eventually, he came to be in charge of the Nazi party in Berlin specifically, uh, which early on was not actually that great of a post. Uh, the Nazi party was not particularly powerful in urban areas during much of its early years. However, uh, Goebbels was the perfect person for this position because, you know, he was an erudite, effective speaker. He was highly educated and he was connected in exactly these urban circles. Uh, so he was in charge of the Nazi party in Berlin and intentionally used violence and spectacle Uh, in order to uh, enhance the Nazi party's uh, position in that city. He also very uh, intentionally and deftly capitalized on the death of one of the most famous Nazi, quote, martyrs, uh, Horst Wessel, uh, who is a young Nazi cadre member uh, who was killed by leftists in a political scuffle vessel um, became this sort of like symbol of you know Nazi virility and power and sacrifice and stuff um, and a song in his honor uh, eventually became the official party song the official anthem of the Nazi party so Goebbels was a key figure in the political rise of the party in the early 1930s elections uh, as a propagandist he positioned the Nazis as an answer to Germany's problems uh, during the Great Depression and also sort of like post-war malaise and loss of territory and stuff like that After Hitler's seizure of power, uh, Goebbels quickly rose to become the propaganda minister in Nazi Germany, uh, organizing rallies, films, press, radio, uh, some control of public health provisions, uh, and was also heavily involved in the planning and execution of the 1936 Olympics, which were held in Berlin. For an example of Nazi propaganda of the kind that I'm talking about, you can check out the movie Triumph of the Will, uh, which Goebbels did not write um, or direct or anything like that. But but this is exactly the kind of image that Goebbels was trying to create using uh the Nazi Party's propaganda apparatus, and he was extremely good at it. However, that was peacetime. Uh during the war, Goebbels' position was uh was greatly diminished. It was quite hard. Uh takeover of broadcasting and you know other technologies like that in conquered territories justified um some continued role for Goebbels during the war. Um, You know, he tried to enhance the morale of Nazi party members and German soldiers as they were occupying France and other parts of Europe, and also to shore up morale on the home front. Uh, Also, on the home front, Goebbels was very big in the promotion of a total war uh, posture against the Allied forces, you know, he thought that the entire German economy should be organized around war making, which it actually wasn't pretty much ever. And, you know, even when they kind of started to try, it was already 1943 and it was way too late. Anyway, uh, this total war position never quite made it uh, against Hitler's stubbornness, and Goebbels was not in charge of it when it was uh, actually made policy. As Germany's defeat became inevitable, Goebbels' position uh, again deteriorated. You know, propaganda was not particularly useful at this point. Uh, However, he was very intent on uh, avoiding trial. He didn't want to get put on trial by the Allies, uh, so he burned a bunch of papers and moved his entire family into the bunker system, the Führerbunker, with Hitler and others in a sort of heroic last stand in Berlin. That's what he thought about it, right? After Hitler's own suicide, uh, his sole act... As Chancellor of Germany, uh, which he was made by Hitler's last will and testament, his sole act as Chancellor was to surrender uh, to the invading Soviet forces. Uh, On May 1st, he then had his medical staff in the bunker uh, sedate his children uh, so that they could have cyanide administered to them uh, without their knowledge. He he killed all six of his young children. Um, He and his wife then themselves committed suicide by cyanide ingestion. His remains were found and taken by the Soviets uh, and put in a warehouse for a while. Uh, they then uh, eventually completely destroyed them. You know, they burned them. They crushed them. They, they, they completely destroyed the remains as such um, and scattered them in a nearby river in 1970. So, uh, Joseph Goebbels, we will see you in hell. And finally, we bring you the big man himself, Adolf Hitler. Adolf Hitler was the son of an illegitimate child, Alois Schickelgruber, and Clara Pulzel, uh, his third wife. Adolf Hitler was born in 1889 in Austria, uh, but spent a lot of his childhood in Bavaria, which is where he developed his accent. He had a terrible family life uh, and a terrible relationship with his father in particular, poor school attendance and poor school performance. Uh, He attempted an arts career in Vienna, you've probably heard of that. Um, Vienna was also the site of his radicalization and his turn towards virulent anti-Semitism. By 1914, uh, he was back in Bavaria and enlisted enthusiastically in the German army. Uh, He was severely injured in World War I several times, um, uh, injured in the leg, Uh, he he inhaled mustard gas uh, on several occasions, Uh, he uh, reported several bouts of temporary blindness as well. He stayed in the army after the war and joined, uh, at the army's behest, the German Workers' Party, a proto-Nazi right-wing party. Uh, He also designed its flag, uh, the iconic uh, swastika on a white circle with a red background. The party then very soon changed its name to the National Socialist German Workers' Party, or the Nazi Party for short. Uh, He gained a lot of veteran followers in the Nazi Party, which he was a rising star in, um, and uh, was a major player in what would come to be known as the Beer Hall Putsch, which I've mentioned in several previous episodes, in 1923 uh, by storming the government halls of Munich. Uh, This was following in the footsteps of Mussolini's recent march on Rome. Uh, The Beer Hall Putsch was an immediate failure that resulted in Hitler and uh, other accomplices imprisonment uh, for a year. Uh, He wrote Mein Kampf while he was inside prison. The electoral situation for the Nazi party and also their political position improved vastly uh, after the stock market crash in 1929. Uh, Their party vote share rose from 2.6% back in 1928, uh, finally to 37% by 1932, Governmental uncertainty in the Reichstag uh, prompted Hindenburg, the president of Germany, uh, to eventually ask Hitler to form a government uh, after several other failed parliamentary negotiations. Hitler's nascent government then used the Reichstag fire, which was a false flag uh, attack on the Reichstag, uh, as a justification for political violence and rule by decree. Uh, This prompted the creation of what we would now call the Nazi state, uh, although technically they were still operating under the laws and governance structure of the Weimar Republic. Uh, Hitler and the Nazis uh, then seized uh, a lot of Jewish assets and, you know, the assets of a lot of other people whom they would oppress and then later murder, and used this money to finance a massive public works, public spending program, and a bunch of other government programs, um, big spending on rearmament, of course, but also a lot of social programs um, resulting in the Nazi party becoming essentially the most successful of all fascist projects in world history. Uh, They went from a rinky dink, nonsense, useless party uh, to becoming the ruling party of one of the most powerful countries on earth uh, within about 15 years. Um, the Nazi project resulted in the complete transformation of German society. Uh, they organized their society around the logic of political violence, oppression, anti-democracy, uh, and combined it with very serious, earnest social programs and aid for those in the in-group, in the social in-group area in Germans. Uh, anti-communism and anti-Semitism were the center of their politics. I don't have time here to get into the blow-by-blow of World War II or the Holocaust, You should seek out those sources elsewhere, but the important thing to note here is that Hitler was a true believer in both anti-communism and anti-Semitism. To him, they were uh, inextricably connected. As defeat in World War II approached, uh, Hitler, as I've said before, uh, moved to Berlin uh, and escaped into the Führerbunker, which was a network of subterranean shelters that were not intended to be a permanent residence uh, for the Führer, but in uh, you know they were intended as a, as a temporary escape. Uh, they instead became a semi-permanent living space for him and many of the other Nazi insiders as the government and uh, their whole society collapsed around them because of the invading Soviet forces. So Hitler spent uh, the vast majority of his last days Uh, And weeks underground, he made his last trip to the surface on April 20th, 1945, his 56th birthday. Uh, These final weeks were plagued by palace intrigue and attempts at other, you know, Nazi insiders to seek a separate peace, uh, either with the Western allies, that is the United States, France and England, uh, or with the Soviets. Uh, But Hitler would not budge. Uh, He heard of Mussolini's capture and killing and was determined that this would not happen to him, you know, that he wouldn't be killed by partisans as his uh, erstwhile ally had been. On the night of April 28th, 1945, uh, he married his longtime partner, Eva Braun. And then on April 30th, 1945, uh, the two of them committed suicide. Uh, Eva Braun ingested cyanide, uh, whereas Hitler shot himself in the head. Uh, His body, their bodies, were burned together and were never found or uh, specifically directly identified. So, Adolf Hitler, we will see you in hell. All right, that was a special episode of 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right, except that this one, of course, uh, was about celebrating the deaths this week in history of Martin Bormann, Joseph Goebbels, and Adolf Hitler. If you found this podcast educational, helpful, or interesting, please like, share, and subscribe with friends, family, and comrades. And if you found it especially interesting or helpful, please check out my Patreon at patreon.com slash 15 Minutes of Fascism. That's 15 Minutes of Fascism, all one word. All right, I'll talk to you next week.